Well, this time, um, I would invite you to stand. Steve Anderson's going to come, and he's going to read Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. Acts two fourteen. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thank you, Steve. Lord, help us today now as we come to um, a passage, Lord, that is confusing to many. Um, It's often just breezed through uh, by most, and yet has been so foundational um, to different arms of the church in different ways, some wrong ways, and some we would consider to be orthodox ways. But Lord, now as we take our time to come before this text and allow you to have your way with us, Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear. And Lord, what we, what we are not, Lord, would you make us? What we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And Lord, we, we desperately need especially today, Lord, of uh, an awareness of what it is that you actually mean and what you're seeking to accomplish through allowing us to have this record of um, Peter's sermon. And Lord, we, we just ask now for help in your precious holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I won't lie to you. I don't typically preach another person's sermon. It's not a habit that I want to get into. In fact, it's very much looked down upon to take someone else's sermon and regurgitate it for yourself. But for the next couple of weeks, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Now, I'm not just going to copy John MacArthur or John Piper or Alistair Begg or someone like that. That wouldn't be ethical. But what I am going to do is I'm going to preach through Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 2. So in that sense, I am preaching someone else's sermon. And honestly, as a pastor, that's kind of weird, right? And yet, this is God's inspired word, and he's given this sermon to us for a number of reasons. Now, the reality is, friends, that the book of Acts is full of sermons. If you remember that that kind of uh, uh, five-point um, outline I gave you, have given you a number of times about, you know, where is Christ in the Bible? A very simplistic kind of Sunday school answer to that is in the Old Testament, Christ is predicted. In the Gospels, Christ is revealed. In the book of Acts, Jesus is preached. In the epistles, he's explained. 
in the book of Revelation, he's expected. And just honing in there on that third one, in the book of Acts, Jesus is preached. (laughs) Why? Because we have just record after record after record of apostles preaching about Christ in the book of Acts. And so this is not going to be the last time that I preach someone else's sermon, okay? But there's a reason for it. Now, let's just consider now the structure of Acts chapter 2, because the reality is Acts chapter 2 should be taken in one uh, in one whole lump. And yet, because of all the, the differences and the controversies within the church and that kind of stuff, and the importance of what's been going on here, uh, we want to take our time to walk through it. But let's think through the structure. There's the event of Pentecost, which we looked at last week. There's the sermon for Pentecost, which would be verses 14 through 36. And then there's the response to Pentecost. Those are the people that listen. And then how that the, the initial church was formed by the 3,000 and the 120 all coming together. And so this morning we're starting on this sermon. And there, that sermon can be divided into two parts. First of all, uh, Peter is explaining the event of Pentecost. He's saying, look, I'm going to show you what this is. And then next week, we'll look at the message of Pentecost, because ultimately, the message is where the sermon is going. But it's getting there through the explanation of the event of Pentecost. And friends, this is so critically important for us. So now we need to remind ourselves of the occasion then for the sermon, which is the event of the Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit was being poured out from heaven to establish the church for baptizing or by baptizing them by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, but also to empower the church by filling them with the Holy Spirit. In other words, enable the, enabling the, the, the Holy Spirit to control the people to actually minister the gospel. That's going to continue to go on through the book of Acts, and it continues to go on today. And then the disciples the apostles and the rest of the 120, began to speak in unknown tongues. Now, they were unknown to them, but they were known to the people that were there gathered in Jerusalem. So these were real languages, and they were surprised that these these, uh, disciples of Christ were speaking in their native languages, literally, from my own uh, village. And all of this was the result of the Holy Spirit filling them for ministry and giving them utterance. And they spoke about the mighty works of God. And of course, the Jews who were listening, some of them were curious, and they asked questions and ultimately asked the question, what does this mean? And others, of course, not wanting to believe what they were seeing and hearing or experiencing, they responded by mocking, because that's what you do when you don't want to believe what is right before you. You mock, and they say they are filled with new wine. They are just drunk. So Peter stands up to speak, and delivers a sermon in response to both of those questions, both the searching question, what does this this mean, and the mocking accusation, they're filled with new wine. And so Peter is telling us, and here's the proposition, that the events of Pentecost, or say the event, singular, of Pentecost, is rooted in the book of Joel. Now, this is a kind of a theological proposition, but this is what's happening. This is a theological text that has theological uh, ramifications. So we want to, we want to anchor it then in this understanding that what, what Peter is doing is, is showing that the event of Pentecost is rooted in the book of Joel. 
Now, remember, I remember when I was young, growing up in England, I used to watch a lot of TV, and a lot of TV in England was actually American TV. And I learned some lingo from the 70s. Now, some of you younger generation have no idea what I'm about to say. But I learned something. This is po- on a popular American greeting, and it goes like this. Hey, Bobby, what it is? You guys remember that? What it is, man, what it is. I thought, that's kind of strange. What, I, I don't know, what, what is what? You know, I'm, I'm confused as a child. And then I remember watching the movie Amadeus. Anyone see the movie Amadeus? Now, you may have caught in the movie Amadeus that, that the emperor, Joseph II, kept responding to kind of difficult situations and conundrums that were kind of going on politically. And he would always respond by, by saying, well, there it is. Well, there it is. And what's interesting is I found myself using that phrase a lot. And then I thought about it a little bit more. And here in the Bay Area, one man's experiment with ice cream and two oatmeal cookies dipped in chocolate produced a -a one-of-a-kind ice cream sandwich, which became known as it. People said, what are you eating? Well, it's it. And so now that's the brand. It's it. Well, what it is. Well, there it is. It's it. I got one more for you here, okay? Of course, we can't forget to mention the very famous Hershey's candy known as a whatchamacallit. You guys remember that one? A what? A whatchamacallit. Again, it's a younger generation. These people are crazy. What is going on with Pastor Rod? He has lost his marbles. What does this have to do with what's going on here? Well, when we look at Peter's answers to the two questions, He responds first by saying what it isn't. In other words, this is not that. In other words, this Pentecost is not drunkenness. And then he responds by saying what it is. This is that. What you've seen and experienced and heard is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And friends, it is not surprising that Peter responds Uh, by taking his hearers to the Old Testament to show how the Old Testament prophecies are a fulfillment of Christ. Because if you remember, Jesus did that with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then when he got back with the, the disciples and they were gathered together in the upper room, guess what? He did the same thing again. He showed them himself from where? Moses the Psalms and the prophets, which are expression of the whole Old Testament. So now Peter is doing the same thing. In fact, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we're reminded that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He was talking about himself. From where? From the scriptures. Well, what scriptures did they have then? The Old Testament. So here is Peter now, and he's, he's proclaiming something in answer to these questions. He stands up to speak. Now, it's it's important that we notice a little bit here about how Peter begins his sermon. Um, And it's, I think, some helpful things here. It says, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. And just two things I think are worth noting here. First of all, he addresses his audience, right? The men of Judea and those who, it says, who dwell in Jerusalem. I think, I think he's respectful. I think he's, he's identifying his audience. These are all the people that are gathered here. He recognizes them as Jews. And then secondly, he establishes his authority. Notice what he says. Let this be known to you. 
and give ear to my words. In other words, he's respectful, but he has something to say and he needs to be listened to. Okay, so he begins this way, capturing their attention. It's already been captured by what they have been hearing. And now he's going to give an explanation for what's been going on. And there's two points that I want us to focus in on as we look at our passage today. Verses 14 through 15 begin with what I'm calling what Pentecost isn't, right? But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So he addresses his mockers' claim. He says, your claim is misguided. Then he says, here is your evidence. All right? And this is a simple, clear way to deal with mockers. Anyone here ever had to deal with a mocker? Now, sometimes we get sucked in, and we can get emotional, and we want to respond in kind. And one of the things we can learn, even from here, is the simplicity and the clarity of how he addresses these mockers. We've just kind of touched on it. First of all, address the mockers with respect, right? Men of Judea, those who dwell in Jerusalem. He's not, he's not kind of tearing them down. He's addressing them for who they are. Secondly, address their claim directly. Don't kind of beat around the bush. And he says, what? For these people are not drunk. You claim that they're drunk. They're not drunk. He is addressing it clearly. And sometimes when people mock, what are they trying to do? They're trying to intimidate. And so you kind of really don't want to deal with what they're talking about because you just don't want to get into it or you, you feel like they have the, 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 the better ground, so to speak, to argue with on it. It's like, no, 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 just be clear. Uh, address their claim. And three, support your answer with evidence. And what's the evidence? It's only the third hour. This is nine o'clock in the morning. This isn't when people go around getting drunk. I mean, it's very simple. It's very clear. Now, most people who mock God's people and God's word have not spent much time with either. I don't know if you've experienced that at all. Oftentimes, they present something that they perceive is what God's people believe, or they perceive what God's word says. Now, certainly they have plenty of evidence of people who claim to know Christ who are not really walking for him and are a bad example, right? But for those who are true followers of Christ, who are truly trying to walk with him, um, what they are claiming isn't necessarily reality. And oftentimes that's the case. But here's the point. We don't want people to be distracted from the truth because our lives and our bad behavior catches their attention. We want to be clear. We want to be respectful. And we want to interact with them based on what we actually believe and what Scripture actually says. So mockers will have a distorted understanding of what true Christians believe and what God's word actually says. So, for example, let me just kind of throw out a couple of them. People might say, well, doesn't Jesus say we are to love one another? And the answer is what? Yes. And they might continue on and say, well, why are you being so hateful to me? All right. Well, there's all context there, right? Well, doesn't Jesus say we're not to judge others? And the answer is yes. We all know Probably the second most famous verse in the Bible, right? You know, judge not lest you be judged. 
Yeah, obviously, there's a context there that kind of gives you an understanding that he's not saying don't judge others. He's saying be careful that when you do judge, that the standard that you judge them by is the same standard that you're judging yourself by, right? Or doesn't Jesus say we are to forgive others, so why can't you forgive me? Again, all of these have a context. All of these, any seasoned child of God is going to understand that these statements have a context and a part of a greater argument. And the way they're being presented by the mocker is totally inappropriate or misguided. And so I'm just trying to show you the fact that when we come in interaction with a mocker, a lot of times we just have to listen to what they say, remain calm, but address their claim and then give the actual evidence that answers what it is that they're concerned about, rather than somehow foolishly handling the word of God. If we, if we allow a verse to be taken out of context, of course, it can be dist- we can say a lot of things, right? The famous example is what well, Judas went and hung himself, right? Go thou and do likewise. You're just taking two different passages of Scripture and putting them together. See, oh, this is what the Bible says. Well, of course, it's not what it says, but this is how often uh, you know, people who are unbelievers who want to scorn and mock, they'll take passages of Scripture and they'll put them together and they'll throw them and say, oh, you believe this. It's like, you're not really dealing with the Word of God accurately and you're misrepresenting what we actually believe. Now, if a mocker has any integrity, they will listen to your respectful and clear response. But if they don't, leave it in God's hands. And hear this, there have been many who have mocked God at one time or multiple times but later have come to bow down at his feet in repentance and faith. And so even if you bumble and stumble in interacting with a mocker, if you're seeking to honor the Lord and you're seeking to honor by presenting his truth, um, God is going to be using all of that for his glory. You can trust him with it. So the first point is this, what Pentecost isn't. And, and, you know, Peter doesn't spend a lot of time with this. He just lays out the argument and he's like, all right, now let's move on. Notice what he he says next. What Pentecost is. What Pentecost is. Notice verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. What Peter is saying is that the events of Pentecost are the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel prophesied in the Old Testament, in particular, the section that he's quoting, Joel 2, 28-32. He's saying, this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. So there's no further explanation. All he does is quote Joel 2, 28-32. <laughs> no commentary You know, he's not reading like a study Bible where there's some notes on the side. No, he just quotes the Old Testament. And what he's saying is this in the Old Testament, or sorry, this that we're experiencing at Pentecost is that. What you saw is that. This is a prophecy. This is a fulfillment. And friends, this is really important for us to see. And what we're going to find then is there are three specific messages in Joel's prophecy that help us to understand what was going on at Pentecost. All right? What is Pentecost? Pentecost is a new era, a new era. Look at verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares. Now, if you'll notice, our text includes these two identifying expressions that are the heart of Joel's prophecy. 
the expression the last days, as well as the expression the day of the Lord. These are, these are apocalyptic kind of statements, right? So this is prophetic language. These two expressions serve as a bracket to some of what Joel is saying here, as well as to indicate something about the what and the when of God's plan. So as we're thinking about this new era, first of all, understand this first phrase, the last days, the last days. People are often confused by this expression, the last days. Right? You often see, you know, again, this is how the, the kind of world looks. I haven't seen this recently. I haven't been in a city necessarily. But, you know, the, the guy with the, the sandwich guy who has a board and is, you know, the end is near. These are the last days. Repent. You know, that kind of a thing. This is how it's perceived that the last days are talking about the end of the church age when things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then it's going to be right before the Lord's return. But friends, that is a misreading of Scripture. Let me give you a classic example. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Get your Bibles and turn there. I know it's going to be on the screen, but I want you to see this. This is Paul writing to Timothy, and he's, he's writing here in his second epistle, at least the second to us. It's his last epistle. And what he's saying to Timothy is this is what is going to happen in the last days. Let's just read it together. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Well, I'm glad that's future to us because it certainly isn't around now, is it? No, this is exactly what's happening now. And notice what he says, avoid such people. Now, to make it even worse, we have to discover the content and the context here is not eschatological. In other words, it's not, it's not given to, to, to talk about the future. Paul's talking about the present And to top that off, if we continue reading in this passage, what we find is that this is a description of the church. This isn't a description of all the ungodly people out there. This is a description of the church now when Paul is writing to Timothy. Notice what it says. From among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with the sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. These are people that come and creep into the church and create then division, create these kind of wandering kinds of thinkings. And they they enter in and they stir up households. This is what happens in the church, friends. So it gives us an indication then that this idea of last days isn't just a future thing. There's something happening now. And friends, this is a picture, what we just read, is a picture of the church in Ephesus. It's certainly a picture of the church, of XYZ church down the street. But hear this, it can be a picture of gateway if we're not careful. And that's the point. That's what Paul is saying. This is what it's going to be like. This is what it is like, so be careful. And he goes on to charge Timothy to preach the word and to guard the word and to guard the truth. Okay? Now, what the last days really are, are this new era ushered in by the Holy Spirit from the time of Jesus' departure until 
his return in glory. Or we could put it this way, between Christ's first coming and his second coming. All of that is this period, this era, called the last days. Now, since that is the period that's called the last days, guess what you're living in? The last days. So we understand then there's something that's going to happen then in these last days. There's a, a new era, and this new era comes with a new administration. Now hear this, in the Old Testament era, that Old Testament era functioned with prophets and priests and kings and tabernacle and temple, and all of those offices are fulfilled in one person whose name is Christ. And what God does is he institutes this thing called the church. And so there's a new administration. There's a new way that God is laying things out. It is the church. It's birthed out of that old era, but it's this new era, and it's called the church, this new administration called the church. So we often think of the last days as the church age, if we want to use that kind of language. The practical point for us here is that we are called to live and minister in this new era called the last days. Listen to how Hebrews begins, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these, what? Last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Okay? So there's a shift going on here. Um, so, this last days. There's also this idea, this expression, the day of the Lord, in verse 20. And again, this new era is ushered in by the coming of the Holy Spirit, but it will last until the Lord returns and the day of judgment takes place. And the expression, uh, uh, day of the Lord, can either mean a day of judgment or reckoning, but also a day of joy and delight, in particular for those who are his but it seems to be indicating a more a day of judgment in the book of Joel in particular because it's described as a great and magnificent day. So friends, here's just kind of bring it all together. We are living in the last days between the Lord's ascension and his returning glory. And so what Joel is saying to Israel and what Peter is applying to the Jews in Jerusalem also applies to us. Okay? So there's this new era we are living in this new era. Now, in this new era, there is, secondly, a new experience. A new experience. And we're going to begin by talking about what I'm calling the ingathering. He says that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is going to be a new thing. He says, I'll pour out. Didn't we have rain this week? Did, we, did you guys get rain? Yeah, it was just a very small amount of rain, but it was just a little bit of rain. This idea of I will pour out means a violent pouring, a torrential rain that will have a radical and lasting impact on all that it touches. I confess to you, I think I've confessed to you this before, but I do not have a green thumb. In fact, if anything, I tend to kill plants rather than nurture them. I tend to destroy them rather than Give them health. But I have learned through the years that having a good hose and a good nozzle to spray the plants with is essential for my flower's survival, although the survival won't be long. 
But even with all the right equipment, one of the things I run into sometimes is that I tend to set my nozzle too high. And so I end up not actually watering the plants. I end up destroying the whole root structure, right? Because it's like it's supposed to be a nice drizzle over the plant rather than, you know, this torrential kind of jet shot there. And all of a sudden, all the earth around the plant is being destroyed and turned upside down. You've probably seen some pictures of flash floods and how they come immediately and fast and they, they change the course of, of rivers and, and, and ravines. There's a torrential outpouring of rain, and the damage is catastrophic. Rivers and creeks chart new paths. Bridges and villages and towns, they disappear. Homes are turned upside down. Farms are flattened. Animals are displaced. Did you see the video this past week of, of the um, Hurricane um, Ida, and in particular in a place in Mississippi, Mississippi, Mississippi that there... Um, the flood rose and then it receded and there was a cow stuck in a tree way above the water. It's pretty humorous. You know, in light of all the destruction that was going on, there's this cow out there, you know, get me out of this tree, right? I understood what he was moving then, all right? We all understood it. But these are the things, friends, that happen. But the point here is how do we get there? It happens because of this torrential, violent outpouring of rain. That's the picture here. Joel is describing an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will come with heavenly pressure. And it's more powerful than the hurricanes. And it will leave the land, the spiritual landscape, reshaped. Something is being unsettled. Something's being reshaped by this torrential outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I will pour out my spirit. And then he says, on all flesh. Now, all flesh here is not talking about all mankind. Now, this is an interpretive thing you have to think through here because Joel is talking here in particular about Israel. And Peter is talking specifically about the church. He's pouring out a spirit on all, because that's what's happening, all the church Right? These are the followers of Christ. So again, in the Old Testament, it was Israel. In the New Testament, in particular, after the Gospels, it's the church. Joel is making this distinction, and hear this, the Jewish experience of the Holy Spirit, where God would be poured out on some prophets, the priests, the kings, and some unique individuals, as God determined. And now, in this new era, this new experience, God's Holy Spirit is going to be unleashed on all, all of God's people. Now, see, he's making this distinction. This is what it was like in the Old Testament, Joel's saying, but there's going to come a time, yet future, when God's Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on all. So this is new. So back in the Old Testament, if you wanted to to learn more about what God wanted you to do, more than likely you had to go to a prophet, you had to go to a priest, someone who could read the scriptures for you, someone who could share the, the law with you. They didn't walk around with their giant Torahs under their arms necessarily. It wasn't like that, okay? I mean, we have that today. We have the word of God right you know, at our fingertips, literally. They didn't have that. So you had to go to someone that was a, a person who received God's revelation and was able to write it down and then, then had it stored, okay? That's the, that's the Old Testament kind of dynamic. But as we get into the New Testament now, 
something is different, something has changed. The Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on all. Now, John chapter 14 and and chapter 16 are really important, I think, for us at this point. Because we have Jesus with the disciples in the upper room. And here's what Jesus says. This is John 14, 16 and following. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you, or with you and will be in you. So Jesus here in the upper room is preparing the disciples for this one who is going to come. This helper is the Holy Spirit, and he ultimately is going to fill you. So he's, he's looking ahead to what was going to happen there on Pentecost. But just note that he's the helper. He's described as the helper. Some translations say the counselor or the comforter. And he's also the, the one who is the advocate. So just think of him as, as your advocate who is always walking with you. Parakeleo, he's walking alongside you, right? He's there with you. That's, that's the wonderful kind of picture that we have of the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. Then in, in chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Right? So Jesus is saying, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying, this one is just like me, but he's going to be a helper. He's going to walk along with you. He will guide you. He will teach you. And so what we see there is that the Holy Spirit has come and is gathering God's true believers into his church. And we see that in the room where the disciples were gathered, that when the violent sound like a mighty rushing wind came in, it was that moment where they were all baptized by the Holy Spirit into this body of Christ. Subsequently, they were able to be filled with the Spirit and to proclaim the good news. And we see by the end of the chapter that there are 300 Jews who believe who are added to the church. And so, friends, the first thing to note is that with the coming of the Holy Spirit, Christ is gathering his church. And so there's a natural question for us to ask. Am I in? Am I a part of that gathering? Am I a part of that church? Have I been baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit? And I realize, I know most of you. And yet I also recognize that Unfortunately, one of the best mission fields in the United States is, is the church, because there's lots of people who have said that they're child, God's children, but ultimately they're not. And so we, we need to constantly ask ourselves the question, are we truly part of God's church? Are we in? This past summer, you may have uh, remembered that there was the Euros going on. If you watch soccer at all, it's like the, the Euro, European kind of uh, localized version of the World Cup. And I watched it a lot. But, of course, with COVID, one of the things that was happening is that some stadiums just were only allowing so many people in. And so you had this new phenomenon that was taking place. You had all these people social distancing inside the, the stadium. You know, select kind of tickets were available. But you had all these people that were showing up to gather outside of the stadium. And they were watching the game on their, on their iPads or, you know, their, their phones and and they could hear things happening in the stadium, but they were on the outside. And, they, and sometimes there were more people on the outside of the stadiums than there were on the inside of the stadiums. I just thought to myself, I wonder, I wonder if that's one of the problems with the church in America today. We've gotten satisfied with being on the outside rather than actually being part of what it is, 
being baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ? Are you in? Secondly, once we thought, talked about the ingathering, I want you to notice now what we're told about what I'm calling the empowering. So when the Holy Spirit comes, he comes with a new blessing and responsibility for each child of God. First of all, we'll call it God's revelation. And here's the point. All believers will receive God's revelation. The Holy Spirit's being poured out. And we're told some things here now that have kind of confused people for a long time. This is, this is not an easy text because there's a lot of different approaches to it. But I'll just read it. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, I need you to, to think with me here. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself and revealed his word through prophets, through priests, and ultimately through kings. So to learn more about God, you really had to go to them to seek them out. They are the ones who had the dreams and the visions. Dreams and visions are means of receiving God's revelation. But when the Spirit of God comes and baptizes believers into the church, something radically new takes place. They're all receivers of God's truth. Because the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God has created us to be revelation receivers. Now, there's no other animal, no bird, no fish or insect that has been created by God to be a recipient of his revelation. Just think about this. You're driving down I-5 and you get down to Harris Ranch on a Sunday morning. You don't expect to look over and see a bunch of cows all gathered together for Sunday morning worship. You don't. Your dog doesn't escape from your home during the week because they're trying to gather with other dogs to have a backyard Bible club. They don't. They don't do it. Your cat, you have to bring the cats in there, right? You don't find your cat refusing to come when you put out tuna fish. Of course, when you put out tuna fish, cats always come. In fact, when you just have the can, somehow they know that there's tuna fish and it's coming. But you put this out, they don't say, well, I can't come right now. I'm in the middle of my devotion." Doesn't happen. Why? Because God didn't create them that way. They are not revelation receivers. They don't care. They can't comprehend God. But God, because he has made us in his image, one of the marks of us being humans is he's created in us a capacity to be revelation receivers. And what, what Peter is saying by the words of Joel here is that all God's children now are going to have this capacity to be the receivers of God's revelation. Now, in our church, we take the office of pastor and elder seriously. And one of the unique differences between that office and the office of a deacon is a, an elder has to be apt to teach. And so we want to make sure that that is true. It's a special responsibility to oversee the pulpit and educational ministries of the church, um, and to make sure that the word of God is being handled with care. It's a huge undertaking and burden and responsibility. But God's revelation, the Holy Spirit's revelation of the heart of God through the pages of his breathed word is not limited to them. In other words, you don't say, and I've, I've heard of churches like this, but you, you don't say, well, 
I don't read my Bible. I just, I just wait for Pastor Rod to get up because he's just going to tell me what to believe. No. There's a unique calling for pastor teacher, but the unique blessing and responsibility that you and I have as God's people is that we are revelation receivers. We can grow and we can learn on our own. That's a privilege. That's a wonderful, wonderful privilege. And so what happens here as God is pouring out his spirit on all flesh, all believers, not through dreams, not through visions, but through his inspired and completed word, what we find here is that Joel and Peter create these different categories to help explain what that looks like. No matter your gender, sons and daughters. No matter your age, young and old. No matter your class, male and female servants. Not just the free. No matter who you are as a child of God, as one who is now part of God's church, you have the privilege of receiving God's revelation. So the transition that is taking place in this new era is that God's revelation will not be limited to a few, but it will be made available for all. Now, you may not have thought about it in those terms, friends, but the fact that you have a Bible in your hands, the fact that you go home, and I know because I've been to your homes, there are multiple Bibles stacked up in your bookshelves. The fact that you have it on your phone, friends, is something that God has granted you as a blessing to be a revelation receiver, to comprehend, to understand that God has spoken and he's spoken for your benefit. It's not just limited to a few. It is truly given to all who are his. And friends, let's not lose sight of that fact. It begs the question, doesn't it? If God has revealed himself to you in the word of God, then what are you doing about it? What is your attitude toward God's revelation? Do you long to study God's word? Do you place yourself under its authority? Do you look for help and guidance and, and, and counsel from the helper? How do you approach it? God has created you to be a revelation receiver. So you're empowered with God's revelation. Secondly, you're empowered with God's proclamation. All will prophesy God's revelation. See, you can't prophesy until you receive. You have to receive something before you actually proclaim it. So if you notice then in this, in this passage, the fruit of being the recipients of God's revelation is that each member of the body of Christ can now prophesy both genders all ages, all classes of people who are part of God's church, having received God's revelation, are now commissioned to prophesy. And we think about prophets in the Old Testament and their prophecies. We need to understand that there are typically two aspects of their prophecies. There's, there's, there's a message to those who are there present in their hearing. And then typically there is a secondary future fulfillment to take place. And we can think of these of two more ways in which prophecy works. The first one is what I'm calling foretelling. And think of that in terms of this way. It's not, it's not crisp and clean, but it's proclaiming God's new revelation. In other words, to foretell is what you and I would typically think of when someone says, well, I have some prophecy. This is some, I'm giving you something that hasn't been said before. This is new information about something that's going to happen in the future. That's foretelling telling. It hasn't happened yet. It's given before it happens. And of course, we had a bunch of that happening 
back in 2020, right? From a lot of people that claimed to be Christians, a lot of prophets stood up and said, you know, this is who our president's going to be. God has told me I'm prophesying this. You know, COVID is going to be done in such and such a long, you know. All these prophets got up. It doesn't seem like anyone's being held accountable for being a false prophet, right? So there's foretelling, but there's also what we're calling forthtelling. That's proclaiming God's old revelation. By old, I simply mean God has just revealed it, or it's been revealed way in the past, right? So this is actually what I as a pastor do. I am forthtelling. I'm not foretelling. I'm not telling you something mystical that no one else knew that God only revealed to me. I'm telling you what has already been revealed. And I'm communicating to you what the word of God says and telling you prophetically, this is what we need to do about it. This is all the aspect of then teaching and preaching the word of God. So when you think about prophecy in this context, don't think mysticism. Think Here is God's truth. Here is God's gospel. And I am speaking about it. I am teaching it. I am communicating it. And friends, this is the blessing that we have. The window of new revelation has closed with the dying off of the apostles. So the time for dreams and visions as the normal means of revelation has passed. Now we have the more sure word written down in the Bible. And we proclaim what God says And we seek to apply it to our context with careful but reasonable tools of application. So friends, the question that is begging now is this. Are you busy? Are you busy receiving? And are you busy proclaiming? This is what's going on here, right? I mean, this is part of our our life as, as Christians is to take time to be allowing the word of God to shape and affect us. But not just to stop there. I mean, throughout the book of Acts, you're going to see proclaiming, proclaiming, proclaiming. They'll say, well, those are just pastors. It wasn't just pastors that were doing that. It was God's people that were out ministering and calling people to repentance too. So are you busy with the blessing of revelation and the privilege of prophecy? And I want to challenge parents in particular. Parents, you are ministering the word of God to your children. When they come and challenge you about the things of God, Are you taking them to the word of God? Are you teaching them what it says? Are you showing them? Are you instructing them? Are you prophesying or preaching God's truth by that? I don't mean you have to have a pulpit. I just have a Bible that's open saying, look, this is what the word of God says. And here's what you need to be doing. Let me me shape you. Let me counsel you. Now, please don't hear me say, beat your children with God's revelation. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this. Do hear me say this. Minister to your children. That means serve them with God's revelation, with God's truth. It's your duty, it's your responsibility, it's your privilege. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit who resides in you, and he has empowered you to both receive and proclaim his truth. Let's shift context. What about in the workplace? Are you ministering the word of God to your coworkers? Now, I know the ethics of being involved in a business today means that when you're having, you know, that maybe see a business meeting or something with a you know, bunch of uh, fellow employees, you know, you don't have the right to stand up and just say, let me share the gospel with you. I, I get that. We're not talking about that. But you do have an opportunity in the workplace to testify. Now, let me share with you, there was a guy in a former church of mine in Michigan who really wanted to 
um, to, to take that to heart. And so he wanted to have an impact where he worked. And so he came up with this idea. And that is he, he took white paint and painted on his black lunchbox, John 3.16 on one side, and on the other side he painted the word repent. And he says, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to make sure that the gospel is always in front of these people. I don't recommend that technique. Because what that did is that actually made him a little bit more of a laughingstock as some kind of a weird nut kind of a guy. His intention was good, but his approach was not necessarily helpful. Um, I had the, I, I call it a wonderful privilege to not be in ministry full time for a couple of years. And God allowed me during that time to go and work for FedEx. It's hard work working for FedEx. It was just moving boxes and all this kind of stuff. But one of the things I loved about that job is you, you got stuck in this container that came from an airplane, right? And you got stuck in there. You're either unloading it or you're loading it. And if you're loading it, you're in that container, usually for two hours or more. And there's usually someone else with you. Well, you're with someone for two hours. You're probably going to talk. And what would happen is there would be some talking that was going on, some kind of casual chit-chat and a little bit more about you, your family, what did you do, and what do you do? And before long, we're talking, and there were times where I would listen, and I would ask a you know, diagnostic question to kind of keep things moving and stuff like that. And before long, they would share some deep issues, and they'd find out I was a pastor. And sometimes that would be like, oh, no, I'm in the can with a pastor, you know, lucky me type thing, right? But other times it was like, hey, this is really good. Hey, let me ask you about this. So what about in the Bible it says that? And people have questions. This is an opportunity for them. to. I, I actually loved going to work, not because of the work, but because of the interaction I was having. It was wonderful. And the point here is this. I always made sure that they were the ones who were asking me those, those questions that might be, you know, ethical, unethical in the workplace. They were the ones that were asking it. I wasn't pushing it on them. The point here is this, and I don't want you to see, please don't, don't hear this as, look, Pastor Raw wants to set himself up as the hero at work. That's not the case. I was just a guy at FedEx saying, I just don't want to be throwing boxes every day. How can I, how can I make this redemptive? And so I, I just had a fresh look at it. All right? so, so here are just some ways maybe to think about how you can prophesy, how you can testify, how you can speak God's truth with the Holy Spirit living in you, and make it redemptive. And I'll challenge you maybe to, to, to think about these things, whether it's in your cubicle or with your students or at the warehouse or on the emergency floor uh, with the team that's made up of foreigners, with those stay-at-home moms and dads. All of those can be redemptive contexts. But friends, it has to be verbal. Ultimately, for 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 prophecy to take place, you have to open your mouth and you have to speak, <laughs> right? So just think about this. First of all, you need to build relationships. You have to earn the right to be heard, right? Secondly, you want to just be mindful to seize opportunities. And by that, I simply mean when they're going through some difficulty, you come along and say, hey, what can I do? How can I help? Would you mind if I pray for you? Right? You're asking questions, and they can always say what? No. But typically, if you ask questions like that, people are like, oh, that sounds like good. Yeah, that sounds I sure appreciate it. Right? They're having a bad day. Um, you can befriend them. You can you know, ask them to, to go to lunch with you. You can take interest in their kids and their hobbies. The point is, and when you do those things, you're, you're kind of building into their lives a relationship and a right to speak, and it takes time. But the opportunity that you can have is not just to be a receiver all the time, but also a proclaimer. 
in that context. That's not difficult. I'm sorry, it's not hard because the Holy Spirit's working with you. So sometimes you just have to kind of say, okay, Lord, I'm going to do this. I'm going to trust you. And he's going to give you strength to do it. So we have the ingathering. We have the empowering that has those two, those two markers, right? Revelation receiver and a revelation proclaimer. And then there's this judgment, this judgment. Look at verse 19. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, uh, uh, above and signs on the earth below and blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. So there's a day coming for all of us, whether we're believers or unbelievers. It is the day of the Lord. And in Joel's prophecy, it is presented as a day of judgment for the wicked. And Joel warned specifically that if they did not repent, that judgment would come upon them like an invasion of swarming locusts. In our modern day context, it might be if you don't repent, there's going to be a stock market crash. There's going to be a tsunami that's going to destroy your homes. There's going to be an earthquake or a devastating fire. But for those who repent... This day will be a day of salvation. All right, so there's these two aspects of this day of the Lord, a day of judgment, a day of salvation and joy. Now, notice in verse 19, uh, these signs, they've been the subject of much discussion. Some take them to be the events uh, that took place during the Passion Week where the heavens darkened and the blood of Christ was spilt. I think that would, if you just force that one a little bit too much, it doesn't, doesn't really resonate with what the text is actually saying. Others understand them as the events that are taking place in the book of Acts, since the expression signs and wonders are repeated. It's like repeated like nine times in the book of Acts. But I would, I would suggest that it appears that some of these signs are being fulfilled in their very presence at Pentecost. In other words, there was a speaking in tongues where prophecy was actually taking place. They were prophesying the mighty works of God. But there are still other signs yet to be fulfilled, yet to come. Blood, fire, vapor, smoke. These are all words that kind of interact with judgment. Darkness on the earth. Can you think of any times in the Bible where there was darkness on earth? In the Exodus, there was darkness on earth. When Jesus breathed out his last, there was darkness on the earth, right? So the darkening of the sky at the cross was, you might well say, a beginning of these signs. Yeah, we still haven't seen the, the moon turn to blood and things like that. And I want you to notice now the word before in verse 20. Because if we, if we notice in verse 20, it says, before, these things are going to happen before the day of the Lord comes. So we, we have kind of an anchor, and there seems to be kind of like a, uh, before here is identifying it's going to be closer to, right? So there's a sense in which then this is standard apocalyptic language that is almost certainly referring to the final cosmic events preceding the Lord's return. So let me just summarize all of this here. We can glean from Peter's application of Joel's prophecy that this new era, which he calls the last days, is a time which begins with the fulfillment, um, begins the fulfillment of dreams, visions, and prophecy in the form of tongues and prophesying of the mighty works of, of Christ and will end with the fulfillment of blood, fire, vapor, smoke, darkness, the moon turned to blood, as a precursor to Christ's return and judgment, the great and magnificent day of the Lord. So you have these, in a sense, brackets 
that give us then this understanding of what we are doing in the middle of those brackets. That's receiving and prophesying, receiving and prophesying. That's what he's saying here. Now, even Luke, who is writing the book of Acts, records in his gospel some of the words of Christ about the day of the Lord. So look at Luke chapter 21, if you would, please. Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 28. It is up there on the screen if you want to follow that. These are the words of Christ. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waters, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So even there in Christ's words, he's saying this is all associated with the coming of the Lord. So friends, the, the, the question that's begging here is the question, are you ready? Are you ready for the day of the Lord? It is coming. In fact, as we will see, Peter is talking about a, a, a new chapter, not a new story, This is a new chapter where the gift of the Holy Spirit is a sign that the day of the Lord is coming, and it's coming soon, which means any time. And as we'll see in the rest of the book of Acts, there will be many evangelistic sermons preached, and almost all of them end with a warning of Christ's judgment. This idea of judgment is always looming in the background, isn't it? And the responsibility we have as Revelation receivers is to proclaim God's truth to others that there is a coming judgment. It's real, and they'll be held accountable. It's real, and that there is still hope. Now, that moves us then to this last section, because we have this statement here of hope. There's a new era, there's a new experience, but it's the same hope. Peter wants us to see that Pentecost is anchored in this same hope. And so he finishes this whole section describing what's going on at Pentecost by quoting Joel and finishing out what Joel says here. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the same old message. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We see this throughout the Old Testament. We see it in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, uh, when the birth of Adam's grandson is mentioned. It says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Then we're told about Abram. He called upon the name of the Lord in Genesis 13. Elijah calls upon the name of the Lord in 1 Kings 18. And then as we read in the epistles, Paul says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the same message. But it's the same message that hasn't changed. People who are are saved because they recognize their sin and their need of a Savior. They're saved because they call upon the name of the Lord. To call upon the name of the Lord is to cry out to God for help and mercy. It's to seek his forgiveness and sin. It is to worship God in praise and adoration. As one commentator says, this is the same old message, but with a twist. And the twist is that Jesus is the Lord 
on whom we are to call. Now you have to understand, Peter is speaking to Jews. And he's quoting Joel. I don't want you to turn back there, but you will notice that if you go back to Joel, what you'll find it says is that this Lord that Joel is talking about is Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which is Yahweh. And when Peter is quoting Joel, he's saying this is Jesus. It's the same message. And what he's saying is Yahweh has come. The Messiah has come. These great and mighty works of God are the great and mighty works of the Messiah. They're the great and mighty works of Jesus. So not only is Peter saying this is that to the events of Pentecost, he's also saying this is Yahweh, the Messiah you long for. And that's why at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he identifies the church as those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see what he's done there. Paul has clarified for us this wonderful statement. It's not just call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's connecting Christ to this wonderful old statement throughout the Old Testament and saying, this is he. He's the Messiah. He's the one you long for. And why would we call upon the name of the Lord? Psalm 86, verse 5 says this, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. The event of Pentecost is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. That the Holy Spirit has come pouring out, not just on some who are God's children, but all who are God's children, so that they can receive his truth and they can proclaim his truth. It's the same truth but it's a truth that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. My friends, just some concluding thoughts. Three of them. Number one, what are you doing to nurture your scripture intake? Now, this is a practical question I want you to think about because right now we're not, we're not waiting for some, might want to say, mystical, dynamic way that God is revealing to us. No, he has already revealed himself in the pages of his word. This is his revelation to us. So what are we doing with it? How are we nurturing that scriptural intake? And I want to encourage you, if you don't have this book, get the book by Don Whitney called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And he lists a number, and I, I've just listed uh, these five ways that he offers for, for scriptural intake so that you can become more disciplined in your life and your walk with him. All right? Hearing God's word. Reading God's word. So we're kind of moving from the general to the more specific, right? Reading God's word. Studying God's word. So you're now you're, you're starting to dig down deeper. Memorizing God's word. 
meditating on God's word, and then ultimately applying God's word because application is critical. You can't just do all these, my way, receive, receive. There has to be some, some output here. What are you doing to nurture your scripture, your scripture intake? And I want to encourage you, you know, look at this list and ask yourself the question, how am I doing on these? Am I just satisfied with hearing God's word? But we love the fact that you're here in church on Sunday. I mean, we're thrilled. This is part of what God's people should do. They should place themselves under the preaching of God's word, no matter who's preaching. This is the mechanism that God uses to to bring his word to bear on God's people. But it's not the only thing he does. You can read God's word. You can study God's word. You can learn how to better study God's word. In fact, you can learn how to better read God's word. Quite frankly, you can learn how to better listen to God's word. Do you memorize God's word? What version of memorization are you on? Are you still King James? Are you NIV? I mean, that's that's a whole other story. Meditating on God's word. What does that look like? How do you do that? I don't want to encourage you. If, If God has given you the privilege of being a revelation receiver, take advantage of it. Take it seriously. Work at it. Have a plan. Make progress. Number two, what are you doing to develop your scripture teaching? I don't want to use the word prophecy because that might confuse you, right? But you're proclaiming, you're teaching. All of us in this room have a responsibility to teach God's word in some way, shape, or form. It's like if I said, you say, well, I'm not a counselor. It's like, no, do you give advice? Well, yeah, I give advice. Do you give biblical advice? I hope you do. Right? That's, you're being a teacher. And you're teaching from what you have received as God's word. Right? So here's a couple of passages to think about. Look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4.15. And I realize that Paul is speaking to Timothy, who's a pastor, but I think there are things here we can apply to ourselves. 1 Timothy 4, begin at verse 13 and then to 15. Until I come, he says, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Devote yourself to these things, he's saying. Something about hearing God's word. And then he says, practice these things. Practice. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. I just pulled out maybe five thoughts from that that verse. Just be a learner, right? Study. Study what it means to teach. Learn how to teach. Practice it. I share this in Simeon Trust Training, but um, when I was a, a youth pastor, we had a youth room, and we had a puppet ministry. Um, and when the kids were gone, I wanted to practice my preaching. I would set up the puppets around the room. It's going to be a lot of puppets in heaven, I can tell you that. But practice. Practice your technique. Practice what it means to take the word of God carefully and actually be able to teach it to different different graded levels. Immerse yourself in it. Make progress. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Well, that's just for pastors, right? No, that's for all of us. 
We're all to be making progress in this area. And I just want to challenge you. It's great to be a revelation receiver. We should have lots of revelation receivers in the church. But we should also have people who are actively growing in their ability to proclaim. And you can do that with your kids. You can do that with one another. You can do that with friends. You can do that in the context of church. I would say when you come to home group and you're you're wrestling with God's word more, seeking to answer questions, you're articulating your thoughts based on God's word, you're hearing other people do it. These are all ways that we learn to grow in our proclamation. Third, are you living your life now in light of Christ's return? Look, we're living between the, the beginning of, we'll say, at Pentecost, right? This, this, when this new era begins, the Lord has departed, the Holy Spirit's been poured out, and yet the end of this era is the Lord's return. And He's called us then to live our lives in the context of that. But do we do that thinking about ourselves, or do we do that in light of Him? Now, I love the book of 1 Thessalonians. Because in 1 Thessalonians, there's like these these five little sections, and they all end with this emphasis on the Lord's return. It's basically a call to live your life in light of his return. That is what we're supposed to be doing. Yes, we have families. Yes, we have work. Yes, we have hobbies, things that we love to do. And those are all part of God's plan for us. But all of that should be done with a, a weather vane that is pointed to the Lord's return. In light of his coming, Titus 2, I think, helps us with that. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you living your life? in light of his return. Lord, help us today. As we've considered now the wonderful truth and the reality that not only has your Holy Spirit been around, and he has, and we know that, not only have we been um, regenerated by means of the Holy Spirit, but Lord, we have your Holy Spirit residing in us. And Lord, that Holy Spirit who has baptized us in the body of Christ is calling us to live our lives as receivers of your truth and proclaimers of your truth. And to do that in light of the reality of your coming. Lord, this is a a huge responsibility for us. Do we take having your word with us translated into our language in multiple forms, some clearer than others. Do we take that lightly? Do we take that for granted? Or do we take advantage of it, Lord, and seek to grow and learn, hunger after? And then, Lord, do we apply it by means of proclamation in the context of the home, among friends, co-workers. Lord, in in a right way, in a way, Lord, that would be ethical and appropriate. But Lord, do do we see our responsibility, Lord, to be, as Acts will say, witnesses 
of what we know to be the apostles' teaching. Lord, help us to do all of that in light of the wonderful promise, Lord, of your coming. Not fearing your coming, but Lord, anticipating with joy our hope in your coming. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.